for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Tracy Reese, who started a namesake contemporary fashion collection in 1998 and has continued to evolve her focus with the times. In 2019, she launched her current brand, Hope for Flowers, with a focus on responsible designs and production, as well as positive social impact. And she's making a go of it from her hometown of Detroit. I wanted to get Tracy's take on the greatest changes fashion has seen over the past 26 years. I also wanted to ask about her love for color, prints, and feminine silhouettes and how they're resonating with today's consumer. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I mentioned to this offline that I'm a fan. And when I came to know you, which this can help lead us into our conversation, back in the day, stylist in St. Louis, I would go to Neiman Marcus. There was this area, I would say it was contemporary fashion's heyday. It was, you know, Nanette Lapore and Millie and Rebecca Taylor, Trina Turk, and of course, Tracy Reese. I loved your dresses. You were the go-to. Tell me about this heyday. Would you agree that it was kind of like it's the time for contemporary fashion? Everything was thriving. Everything was wonderful. I 100% agree. I mean, you know, my career started, you know, at the dawn of contemporary because my first job was at a small brand called Arlequin, which was designed by Martine Sibon, who's an amazing French designer. So it was an awesome opportunity for me. Um, but that was the dawn of contemporary. And then it continued to grow and evolve by the time I launched Tracy Reese, you know, all of those brands that you just mentioned, they used to call us the girly, the girly brands, you know, (laughs) and, but it was, you know, the interesting thing was we were all designing clothes that people really wanted to wear and were flattered by, you know, and trends come and go, but, you know, like 10 years later, People didn't want to buy girly brands anymore. They wanted things that were edgy. But the the laugh is those clothes were often not very flattering. And, you know, we'd have customers come to us and say, you know, I love what you do because I always feel very um, confident. I feel beautiful. I get compliments, you know. So trends come and go, but like looking good, feeling good, that doesn't change what makes you feel confident and beautiful and what brings compliments to you um, isn't always the latest trend. Well, I know you're a CFDA member in a lot of, um, you have your hands in a lot of traditional fashion, I guess, you know, groups, traditions. Um, Did you go through the traditional path to becoming a fashion designer? I guess I did. I, you know, I went to Parsons School of Design in New York, and that was, you know, a great launch pad for my career. Um, and then I was assist, assistant designer before I um, launched my own brand for the first time back in the late 80s. Um, so oh, I 80s. think, I, yes, I'm oh, an 80s, I'm me. an 80s girl. <laughs> <Nice>. um, so, <laughs> and everybody, you know, that was such a great time to um, get started in the industry. I mean, I came out of Parsons with Mark Jacobs and 
a few other, you know, people who have become well-known and everybody just like, like jumped out and like had their own lines. One of my other dear friends, Chris Isles, had a little store in the East Village with her partner, Angel Zimmick. And, you know, everybody was just doing their thing. And there was just this spirit of, we can do this, you know, can do itiveness. It was, uh, how we manage and everybody helped each other. You know, if, if you had to get your order shipped, you know, you'd put the word out and other friends would come and help you get your clothes out of the factory. I mean, I remember trying to get my clothes into Bergdorf Goodman receiving before they closed at 2.30. And another designer friend of mine, Eric Gaskins, he like met me at the factory. We like gathered the full order and ran down the stairs, jumped in two taxis, filled the trunks, and like went flying up 8th Avenue from the Garment Center and across 58th Street to try to get it into receiving before it closed. But, you know, we were all in it together. I remember going to UPS on the 30th of the month to get my orders shipped before cancellation dates. And I would see like six or seven other designers there doing the same thing I was doing. You know, you had a hand truck and a bunch of boxes and we had to fill out bills of lading. None of that stuff happens anymore. It's not that everything is digital, but you know, we were all in it together and that kept you going, you know, cause it yes. was definitely like a hand to mouth sort of situation. I mean, what a cool time. I love these stories. And you, this, you were talking heyday also of the New York um, garment district and also heyday of wholesale selling through retailers. Yep. Was that selling, opening your own store? You're on, well, obviously, online e-commerce wasn't even a thing. It was start. not a thing. It, it, it did not exist yet. And, you know, we had traditional markets where buyers came into the showroom. We would have a month of like back-to-back -back appointments in our showroom, working with buyers from all over the country, you know, and then trade shows sort of uh, entered the scene, Coterie entered the scene, and all of a sudden, you know, we were set up in the Plaza Hotel showing to buyers for like, you know, three jam-packed days. And everything just changes and evolves. Um, but those, we loved welcoming buyers into our showrooms. And now, you know, it's not even, it's hardly done. I mean, showrooms are just like empty spaces now where, where they're giant closets because, you know, buyers don't come in. They don't spend that time like, you know, going from showroom to showroom and really learning about a brand and its essence. Well, let's talk a little bit about kind of the transition. So everything went to edgy. Maybe it wasn't even casual yet, more just more so edgy, <laughs> edgy and unflattering. What was your <laughs> pivot and what was your um, decision from there? It wasn't always unflattering, but it was, you know, there was this like, veering away from femininity that happened like in the mid 2000s. And that was challenging for us because, you know, we are who we are and you can try to move along with the trends, but the people who love what you do, they, they're upset. They, it's like, where's my fit and flare dress? Where's my, you know, where are the things that I always come to you for? So, you know, when we talk about giving advice to, you know, people who are entering the business, it's like, stay true to who you are. You know, you, you find an audience 
if you're lucky enough to find an audience, you want to keep that audience and keep serving them the pieces that they are really hoping to find from you. And I think with a lot of designers, it's a constant struggle because, you know, we definitely want to move forward. You don't want to look like yesterday's news. So, you know, you, you trends are important, but you sort of have to look at the facets of a trend that are in your wheelhouse and not try to chase after everything that's happening out there. You want to sort of interpret trends in your own voice, your own unique voice, and stay true to that voice as much as you can. Yes. Well, what you're doing now with Hope for Flowers, um, does in terms of staying fresh and probably back in the day, um, mainstay at New York Fashion Week, a lot of pressure to keep churning out new collections. And I know comparatively right now, your your focus is more so on sustainability. Would love to hear about kind of um, how Hope for Flowers compares to the OG Tracy Reese line. And if that was intentional, you're like, um, maybe you're seeing the waste happening in the industry. Talk to me about that. I think all of us, you know, I think the the teens was it was a wake up call, like learning how the industry was really functioning, the abuse of labor, um, textiles, what a huge difference the textiles that we choose make in the footprint of a garment. Um, and I was lucky enough to be chosen to be part of a cohort of the CFDA Lexus Fashion Initiative, which was like an intensive um, on sustainable design. So we were part of a cohort with like nine other brands, um, Public School and Arox and just a lot of really cool brands actually. And for nine months, we learned about sustainable textiles. We learned about, you know, supply chain challenges. We learned about innovations um, that are happening in the industry. And we were challenged to write a blueprint of how we wanted to go forward um, with our businesses and how we wanted to incorporate sustainability into everything as much as possible. And what, and, and, you know, sustainability means something different to everyone. And for me, it's not just about the clothes. It's about how they're made, how I'm um, treating the people, the skilled artisans that are making my clothes. But it's also about community. It's also about sharing information, you know, because I think it goes beyond the fashion industry, way beyond. You know, I, I um, am part of a, a group with the UN that is focused on sustainable fashion. And, you know, we're learning about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and all of these other, um, you know, wonderful organizations that are kind of in the mix trying to uh, pressure the industry to work more responsibly and to uh, respect uh skilled artisans, you know, most customers don't understand how clothing is made, how textiles are made. And so therefore they don't understand, you know, the importance of their choices as consumers. And the more people learn, the more they want to make good choices. You know, you don't want to buy fast fashion that is basically keeping people in slavery. You know, they're working for like slave wages. They're not 
being able to support their family. You know, in Bangladesh, the average garment worker is making $100 a month, $100 a month. And they're protesting right now, you know, so all of these big fast fashion brands are producing there. But, you know, they say that they support um, workers' rights, but they're still demanding incredibly cheap uh, prices for the clothing that they are, you know, having uh, produced there. So, you know, we have to be willing to pay a little more. Um, something that seems too good to be true usually is, you know, there's there's something wrong there. Either the textiles are polluting the planet, you know, there's abuse in the in the labor side of things. There's, you know, and then there's overproduction. And, you know, around 2016, 17, as I was learning more and more about all of this, I thought to myself, I'm smarter than this. I'm smarter than this. I, I don't want to be part of a system that's abusing the planet and abusing people. And I have to learn how to work differently. And it's not that our old brand was so abusive. You know, we always were contemporary, luckily. So we weren't trying to, you know, sell a dress for $69 or $39. Our dresses were, were you know, still like expensive for most people. But that meant we were able to pay a living wage to our factories. But I used to source fabrics in Paris and, you know, I'd go to this wonderful trade fair called Premier Vision every season and we'd look at the latest innovations and all these incredible textiles and I just absolutely loved that. But a lot of these textiles had some man-made content that will live forever on the planet, you know? So I had to step away from, you know, those types of textiles and focus on things that are organic and biodegradable and that are made from sustainably forested um, uh, vegetable uh, products or, or crops. And, you know, so it's it's a huge shift, you know, so you're looking at these more simple textiles thinking, how do I make these textiles as desirable as, you know, what we used to do at Tracy Rees, you know. And when I, I launched Hope for Flowers, I thought, you know, first of all, I wanted to have a different brand name because I wanted, um, I wanted to be very intentional uh, with the product and I wanted customers to understand that it was coming from a different uh, place uh, with a different mission. And I also wanted to do it here in Detroit because I can provide opportunity to Detroiters to come along on this journey with me, learn about the business, um, have a world-class brand you know, that is designed and developed right here in Detroit, even though at the moment we're still importing a lot of the production. We are launching an apprenticeship here for expert sewers because I want to be able to do some small batch production right here in Detroit. And I want to help train um, workforce to be able to uh, create you know, these beautiful clothes. So, you know, that's part of our mission along with, you know, just a very community forward um, part of our business. We offer art enrichment for young people and for adults for free. And 
within that programming, we talk a lot about sustainability. We, you know, we're teaching the UN SDGs to, you know, seven to 12 year olds on Saturdays, and they're learning about, you know, the practices of different artists that they might not have known existed, you know, artists of color, local artists. And so they're picking up these techniques, but they're also learning to advocate for themselves and for their future. They're also able to go home and say, mom and dad, you know, how come we're not recycling? Why are we throwing away so much? Mommy, why are you buying this fast fashion? It abuses labor. Young people need to know these things. And inner city people should not be left out of this conversation because, you know, it's all of our responsibility to, you know, save our planet and to retrain ourselves and sort of come down from this kind of throwaway culture that has been, you know, kind of ruling our lifestyles for the past five or 10 years. You know, it's it's so wasteful, it's so disrespectful, and we have to learn how to honor uh, skilled artisans. We have to learn how to care for the things that we have and we love. And, you know, sometimes you have to wait and save your money to buy something that's better. And then it's more precious to you. Yes, that education of designers and of consumers, so important. Like you said, people have to be willing (laughs) to spend more. You're not going to get this spending $5 on a shirt. And also, gosh, the fast, there's that uh, constant talk on my team about how TikTok and the platforms of the world are even expediting the trend cycle and trends come and go at a more rapid pace than ever. Yeah. So trends, you're, you're not focusing on trends. Well, how would you say that you play into the trend cycle? <laughs> trends can be fun, but you really have to look at it in terms of, you know, does this have longevity? Am I going to want to wear this in five years? Am I going to want to wear this even next next season or next summer? You know, so I don't want to design things that you don't want to continue to wear. I have customers who, you know, bought dresses from me 15 years ago. And they, you know, when I meet them, they're like, I'm still wearing that dress and I still get compliments. It's one of my favorite things or my husband loves me in this or whatever it is. I want the clothing that we design and produce to serve a purpose in your wardrobe. And I want you to love it for you know, years to come, not just for the season. Yes. Tell me about when I was reading about your brand, there was a reference to Detroit as a sustainable fashion apparel production hub. And I was like, is it a hub because Tracy is setting it up? Or or was it when you moved in and started setting up shop, was there already room to work? There was something to work with. How challenging was it? Um, A little challenging, but, you know, when I decided to do this, I actually um, joined the board of an organization called Isaac. It's a nonprofit, um, and that stands for the Industrial Sewing and Innovation Center. And Isaac has actually built a factory, a garment factory here in Detroit with a lot of assistance from Carhartt and some wonderful foundations. Um, but they really wanted to train Detroiters to sew um, uh, garments of all kinds. And, you know, the thinking was that, you know, having the, the opportunity to build a new factory that is already um, focused on sustainability, on less waste, on um, 
fair labor, uh, all of the above, instead of, you know, being bogged down. You know, the, the, the factories in New York have had to survive so much change in our industry. And, you know, the garment center uh, being dezoned, you know, it's, it's just like a completely different um, industry in New York than when I started. And a lot of those factories haven't had the opportunity to invest in new technology to even like clean up. I mean, yeah. a lot of factories in New York look like sweatshops because, you know, once um, so much production started moving offshore, they lost a lot of business, you know, so they're really scrambling to survive and to be able to, you know, stop and and refresh and keep up with um, new innovations and technology, they haven't had that chance, you know, which is a, a, a shame, you know, and on top of it, you know, they're now they're they're scattered all over the place. You know, there's some in Brooklyn, there's some in Queens, there's some in New Jersey, there's some in Long Island City, you know, so we don't have that wonderful, like kind of centralized garment center that existed in the 80s and 90s. So the factory that was built here in Detroit was built with, you know, sustainability as one of the um, a core part of its mission, I should say. And, um, you know, so... Detroit has that opportunity, you know, to to offer the garment center, you know, uh, production uh, option uh, where, you know, you're paying a fair labor price. You're in a a clean facility with well-trained workers and, you know, the latest uh, innovations in technology. So, yes, you know, Detroit can be a hub for sustainable fashion. And there are a lot of really cool brands here. There's Detroit Denim, which they are making like jeans custom for customers and sewing them right here in Detroit. They've got, you know, a great team of of skilled um, technicians and a really cool store here. There's Deviate, which is like a uh, um, unisex, really cool forward brand. They're making things by hand and upcycling things. There's, there's, you know, Tommy Walker, there's, you know, there, there are a lot of really <laughs> cool brands here in Detroit. Cool. And so, you know, we want to make this like a, a world-class, um, option for, for fashion, for production, and also, um, for design and development. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Well, tell me about your business model today and if you decided to do it differently again, intentionally, um, in terms of working with retailers, are you selling direct primarily? We actually, wholesale is the bigger part of our business. So I do come into New York um, every season for trade shows. Um, We sell the collection to Saks Fifth Avenue and Anthropology and Tootsies and, you know, we've got about 30 specialty stores across the country, a little bit in Japan and a little bit in Europe. It, it ebbs and flows. I think we um, need to do a story about Tootsies. I keep hearing about it more and more. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> anyway, um, so we do have direct-to-consumer business. It's a smaller part, but it's a consistent part of our business. But, you know, when I launched the brand, I thought, okay, if we have a commercial business that has a social mission, um, that is, you know, adding value to the community because all of my career in fashion, you know, 
I think any designer will tell you it's sort of a selfish pursuit. You know, you're you're sketching what you what you love. You're you're putting it in colors that you love. You're dreaming. You're you know, and hoping hoping it's going to attract a customer. But um, your world can be a little bit small, or at least your professional life. You know, very industry oriented. And you know, this is Tracy Reese. You know, this we're we're in, we're in, we're in, I guess. 3.0 now because I had my very first business in the 80s. My second business launched in the 90s. This is my third business. And I thought, you know, why can't it be all of the things that you want it to be? So I wanted to kind of get outside of myself a little bit and make sure that I was adding value to the community here in Detroit, not just setting up a business here, but adding value and creating a safe space for people to explore their creativity and learn more about sustainability. So, you know, I mentioned that we have art enrichment for young people. We have Saturday classes that are free if you go to Detroit public schools or charter schools. Um, so we teach um, seven to 12 year olds, you know, all kinds of great techniques. They use a lot of upcycled materials. We talk about sustainability and teach some of those, those tools as well. And then we have adult classes. Um, Thursdays, we do four week sessions. The next one is Tunisian crochet, which oh. launches uh, this <laughs> Thursday. They've done book binding. We're going to do paper making this season. They've done uh, ceramics and mosaics. They've done weaving. So again, we, we try to use a lot of found materials and people bring things in from home to incorporate into their work. But it creates community among all of these people that want a safe space to, to learn some new techniques and to express their creativity. Um, and then we also offer community workshops, and those are focused on sustainable life tools. So we've had a couple of mending workshops, how to take care of, you know, the treasured pieces that you already have. A lot of people don't know how to put a button back on if it falls off and they just stop wearing the piece or the hem falls down or there's an inseam hole or whatever. So some of these simple hand sewing techniques, you know, we give everybody a sewing kit and teach them how to mend their clothes clothes. We've done uh, recycling workshops. We've done composting workshops. Uh, open oh your gosh. garden in a green way. Close your garden in the fall in a, in a very organic and holistic way. We've done energy efficiency for the home. And, you know, so we'll continue to offer these workshops, you know, every month. They're also for free. And we do some craft workshops around the holidays as well. So That's families so nice. can come and create things together. So, you know, we're we're really proud to be able to offer um, all of this programming and to, to keep it free with the help of some wonderful foundations, including, you know, WKK Kellogg, uh, WWK, sorry, Kellogg Foundation. The Ford Foundation has been very generous um, as well, helping us with, business development funding, helping us fund launching our apprenticeship. And we moved into our new studio space, our flagship over the summer. And they were instrumental in helping us get into this space as well, which has been custom built for us. And we have our own dedicated classroom for all of our classes and community events. So, you know, we wanna, you know, spread the love 
and we want to be an important part of this really beautiful community. Yes, I was going to talk about that. You used the word community. And when we we talk about it a lot, but we typically think of obviously social media community and nationwide. And it seems like a lot of your focus is on your local community. Is that Does that translate to where um, your shopper base is? Or it just so happens like it's your hometown and it's your you're giving back. <laughs> it's my hometown. And, you know, I, I had a wonderful childhood in Detroit. You know, I, I went to Detroit public schools, K through 12. I had art classes and music classes all the way through. There was like so much on offer, especially at my high school. Um, and I got a scholarship to Parsons based on my Detroit public schools portfolio. And after the bankruptcy years, so much art and um, education was taken out of the schools. They just don't have the funding. And it was really just killing me, you know, breaking my heart that kids today aren't, you know, getting the same opportunities to, to find themselves creatively that I had. So that was a big motivation to have art enrichment for young people. But, you know, there's such a rich cultural community here in Detroit our director of art enrichment is a practicing artist and she she um, uses wet felting as her um, that's her her current practice and her network of other artists um, is so broad you know and you know you get to meet all these incredible people and see their beautiful work and they're so generous in terms of sharing um, their practice with others. So with our adult classes, we have rotating teaching artists, you know, for every four-week workshop. And so we've had exposure to so much talent and so much generosity. Um, And that's always how I see Detroit is this, you know, my mom was a modern dance teacher. My, my, aunt was a professor of dance at at the local university. My uncle was in performing arts. He was a stage manager in New York for years and years. And we just had that kind of family that was always into um, the arts and always taking advantage of, you know, some of the great cultural activities here in the city. So wanted to be a part of that and, and give back and make sure that, you know, you know, the kids who are, Uh, taking advantage of our programming are getting that leg up and having that opportunity to express themselves. So nice. Well, starting a business is no easy feat. And you talked about (laughs) 3.0. Tell me about doing it three times. And each time you saw a way to do it better where you couldn't really build on the foundation you had set prior or what has given you the determination to do it all over again uh, when, you know, when you've been there and you, you know what it takes? Right. You know, and I think if you talk to a lot of designers, the thing that keeps you going is that you absolutely love what you do. And you're, you know, as long as you're still loving it, you're willing to, you know, climb many mountains The first time I launched my business, I was 23 years old. My dad financed my business. I was in New York. Um, We sold that collection to Barney's and Bergdorf and Saks and a lot of great stores, but I still couldn't pay my rent. You know, everything was hand to mouth and I was doing so much of everything myself, you know, and then we had a little stock market crash in the late 80s. And that was like the death knell for a lot of 
you know, small businesses and I had to get a full-time job and I was lucky that Mark offered me a job at Perry Ellis. And so, you know, just sort of made some money for a while and had health insurance and then, you know, had to get back into it because I realized that, you know, I wanted to be able to fully express my vision. And I think, you know, a lot of times when you're working for other brands, not a lot of times, it, it has to be the brand's vision, not your vision. So I think the reason why so many designers become entrepreneurs is because they want to be able to fully express their own vision. And, you know, the old playbook was, you know, get launched, get noticed, get your product placed, and then pray that a backer will discover you and help you finance the back end, you know, and that didn't happen with my first business, but it did happen with my second business. And that business, you know, lasted for 23 years. So, you know, that was the second business. And, you know, we, that was a, a classic, you know, contemporary fashion story where we had, you know, licenses for everything from shoes to belts to handbags to home goods and bedding and fragrance. And, you know, we had all of these licenses for two labels for both Plenty and for Tracy Rees. We had the runway shows, we had the store um, in the West Village, and then we had a Japanese distributor and we had a store in Tokyo. And, you know, so it was like that classic uh, playbook, this is what you do next, then you do this, then you do this. And, but you're really, I mean, that business, it, it ran me, you know, we were working 60 hour weeks, we we're having the runway shows, we would literally work from like nine till 11, you know, for a month to prepare for these runway shows and Saturdays, you know, and Sundays, and you're eating all your meals at work and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But that was the system, you know, and when I started this business, I knew that I wanted to do it differently, that I, I, you know, we, we, in fashion, we have to create unique playbooks. You know, we, it, it, we, we can't be doing things the way they were done 10 years ago or 20 years ago. All of that is outmoded and it doesn't take into account, you know, where the world is today, where customers are today. And I think there's an opportunity to really envision the business of your dreams and try to work toward making that come true instead of trying to chase after what someone else thinks is a, a successful business model. So with this third business, you know, I really wanted to tailor it to, you know, who I am and who I want to be. And you also start to think about, you know, what do I want my legacy to be? Is it just, you know, that I made a lot of clothes? That's not yeah. good enough. Yes. Good for you. So you, you're obviously um, thinking about it differently in terms of where you're placing your efforts, what you're doing for the community. There's great support from the community, but um, did you think about it differently in terms of the financial, traditional financial backers as well? Um, Definitely. You own own this thing. (laughs) Yeah, I own this thing. And, And, you know, my partners in my old business were such lovely people and we really had a very smooth um, marriage for many years. But then, you know, toward the end, they felt like we should be doing, you know, lower priced volume um, 
manufacturing and I felt very differently. So we realized that, you know, it was just time to kind of go our own way. And um, that was cool. And with this business, I'm able to say, okay, I'm not doing 10 collections a year. I'm going to do, you know, four or five at the most, and they're going to be smaller because it's um, self-financing. And, you know, it's funny, my partner used to always like say, how come the collection has to be so big? But when you're selling to Saks and Nordstrom and Anthropology and all of these stores, everybody wants something a little bit different, you know? And so these collections were vast and we had like 10 a year for each label. So, you know, the other thing I knew I didn't want to do, I didn't want to be working 60 hours a week and weekends, you know, I've been blessed. I've had fashion shows and had all of that excitement and that's not top of my list at the moment. So, you know, that's cool. Happy to let that go. Um, and just, I wanted to get back to the fundamentals of, of design. I wanted to lay my hands on, on all facets of the business again, you know? So that's been really good because at a certain point you have to say, you know, why am I doing this? And am I doing the parts of the work that I really enjoy or am I delegating all of that to others and, and being a manager, you know, or director, you know? And I, I love designing. I love doing the research. I love picking the colors. I love, you know, I love sketching. And those are the parts that I wanted to be doing. And, you know, for the very first time, I learned how to screen print by hand with Hope for oh, Flowers. And this is like, you know, 30 years into a career. So, you know, but all of that is really, really fun and exciting. And it feels very hands-on and organic. Yes. Well, we keep talking about how luxury's growth is slowing. And just would love to hear from you where you think fit in you fit in the contemporary market now do you say advanced contemporary do you say affordable luxury because we keep we there's been the ongoing story throughout the industry for decades where when the economy gets tough um kind of the contemporary market gets quote unquote squeezed and people either go to the fast fashion we talked about or they're just so lucky that they get to shop High, high, I guess lucky, the high, highest right. end of the of the spectrum. Um, what would you say has your, been your experience with this brand as the economy has been so wonky? Yeah. You know, I hate to label it. I would, I would say that it's probably more on the affordable luxury side because I think right now responsibly made products are a luxury. You know, oh, hopefully right. down the road, you know, there will be more uh, access um, and they'll, you know, some of the innovations that have been developed will reach um, some more mass production where, you know, more people can, can, can access them and organic won't be such a challenging thing to um, certify and to actually uh, find. Um, so I guess in some ways, you know, I mean, a dress of ours is going to be like four or $500. So that is not um, affordable for a lot of people. But I know at that price, um, I know where my goods came from. I know what I'm paying my factories. Um, and I know that, you know, it's as responsible as I'm able to make it at this time. Um, so... 
you know, we just keep striving to make the product better, to um, make sure that, you know, the components are the best that we can access. Now, that's a big thrust for us in 2024. It's like, okay, you know, how do we address zippers? You know, how do we address, you know, buttons? How do we address poly bags? How do we address shipping? You know, all of that is part of, you know, trying to work more responsibly. So how can we improve um, in every area uh, with the product and how it is um, shipped and, and delivered to customers? So, but yeah, I think right now sustainability feels like a luxury. Responsible design feels like a bit of a luxury because there are so many shortcuts we could take um, that would bring the price down. That would, you know, be a lot easier to access, <laughs> but I can't, I cannot compromise, you know, and I think, you know, I really want to, um, stand behind the product and how it's been developed and produced. I, I don't want to compromise. And so sometimes that means you just can't do everything that, you know, you're dreaming of doing and that's okay too, you know? Right on. Right on. Let's talk, you've mentioned 2024. First of all, I mean, we've got the short turnaround here between fashion weeks. I saw that um, you may not do a fashion show, but you do have a presence on like Vogue Runway with your collection and a write-up about what you're doing. Uh, what do you plan to do for fall 2024 or your next in, in February? <laughs> right. Yeah, we'll bring the collection to New York in February for market, but we always do our photo shoots right here um, in Detroit using local talent, which is cool. Um, excited about the new season. I mean, you know, we're always excited about the new season and the pieces are coming through um, as we speak. So, you know, we're experimenting with some new sustainable fibers. There's a, a Naya, which is a sustainably sourced cellulosic drapey fabric. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> and um, it is so it's adding a bit of uh, glamour to the mix, but it's like, you know, kind of a mix of like sort of outdoor and very chic indoor and how those two uh, two things sort of complement each other so that it's very wearable and hopefully very cool. Sounds good to me. Any other uh, plans for 2024, whether it's category expansion or market expansion or just doing other cool, cool things in your local home of Detroit? <laughs> well, you know, we hope the business grows, but we want it to grow organically. Um, you know, I think for me right now, a successful business is a profitable business where I'm paying everybody their value and it doesn't have to be, you know, a giant business. It just has to um, be uh, sustainable. Um, and by that, I mean the business itself has to survive. Um, so the big goals for 2024 are really to continue to improve the product, to improve uh, the sustainability of each product, um, and, you know, just take that deep dive and make sure our fit is really on point, make sure our quality is really on point, and make sure that we're proud of each and every piece. Last question, because I don't want to lie in the intro. I, I mentioned that I was going to ask you about your colors, your prints, your feminine silhouettes. What has um, 
working from home and the rise of athleisure. I mean, your your aesthetic has definitely evolved from the early days of Tracy Reese, but how I mean, I still think of you in the same way. What would yeah. you say about the way that um, it's resonating now? And and maybe, I don't know, is it just if you build it, they will come. If you build it and it's amazing, uh, <laughs> regardless of the trends like we talked about. Right. And there's always going to be a reason to look beautiful. Yeah. Right. Oh, and so that. many people, you know, you know, you so they'll, they'll love a dress and say, oh, but I don't have anywhere to wear that. And it's like sometimes you have to make your own occasions. And my mom always said, you know, don't miss out on an opportunity to look your best, you know, so you don't want to be the most casual person in the room. Um, but we want to make sure that what we're designing and producing is comfortable you know, and has a real place in our customers' lives. So, you know, sometimes it's about balance. I'm wearing a very pretty, frilly, beautiful you colored You are. Blouse, Look at you. But I've, I've got a puffer vest with it, and I'm wearing jeans. So, you know, work it out. And Birkenstocks, you know, so there are ways. And I think for us to um, help our customer find ways to incorporate our products into their lifestyles, that's important too, you know. So whether it's styling tips or whatever, you know, it's something that we need to be doing more, having that kind of one-on-one conversation with our audience to, you know, show them how to incorporate beauty into their everyday lives. I love that. Your mom said, don't miss an opportunity to look your best. Uh, Yep. To look, look your, your best. best. I was thinking that's such a nice. I used to say, if I if I can't look cute, I don't even want to go. <laughs> right. <laughs> but your mom said it in a better way. <laughs> <laughs> but that's. I mean. But that's the way you said it is very real for everybody. It's like I don't. If I can't look, why not? Yeah. If I can't look cute, I don't want to go. And <laughs> heaven forbid, I don't want to see a picture of myself. Uh, there if I didn't look cute. So, you know, we all need to make an effort. It's interesting, you know, sometimes we think it's so personal and, but it's really, you know, when you walk into a room and you look great, it makes other people happy. They're into it. You know, it's like, wow. You know, it's like when I see somebody who's really put together or they have like a unique style, I saw a lady I was just shopping. Was I in New York? I don't know where I was. She was wearing a full-length cream sequin vintage dress. And she was wearing like some Adidas and some cool socks. And then she had like like a sporty jacket on and some cool jewelry. And I was like, yes. thank you. Yes. You look so cool. You know, but she made the effort, you know, and she took something fancy and made it like work for every day. I just love that. Ah, uh, I love that. I feel like we could talk fashion for a very long time. We get it, fashion fans. Keep dressing up. <laughs> or don't exactly. even go. Just kidding. <laughs> you can still go. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> Tracy, you are so fun. This was such a joy. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks, Jill. You're fun. You made it fun. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with someone else you think would. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.